Welcome back to another episode of Pod Clubhouse's coverage of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. This is for the fifth season, eighth episode called The Princess and the Plea. This is Paul. This is Caroline. What'd you think of this episode, Caroline? I found it a little kitchen sinky in terms of like all the different stuff that they wanted to do in terms of like... We did bounce around quite a bit. Timelines, Mm -hmm. but then we didn't keep up with the flashbacks and we had to keep up some of the other stories from from previous episodes like going back to the school and all that kind of stuff but Mm. then there was also it wound up being rather focused in the message by the end what did you think well, I want to note that we have watched this episode um, in real time when it aired, and then we have watched it several times, most especially this most recent time, after I have seen the Barbie movie. And that's not a movie you've seen, but I have. And for whatever exact reason, I'm not going to try to nail down, but the message changed for me, actually, in watching this. Maybe just underscored it more, like highlight, bold, italics, the message more, having seen Barbie. So I think that's something I want to unpack a little bit with you and overall I enjoyed the episode I felt a lot of the episode there was a lot going on there that for whatever reason again I did not feel the first time around so I'm really glad that we're revisiting this with a little time past and apologies to those listeners who have had to wait but for real I do feel like I kind of I kind of stewed on this and I and I feel differently over time so I'm glad we did it the beginning of the episode sets us up to show some flashbacks with Midge and Joel these probably are the i don't know probably the least effective part of the episode for me in that i kind of already knew this stuff we've seen how strong their relationship was before we've seen that they you know survived little fights before we assumed he met penny pan and made a move at some point right so did you get another deeper meaning from the flashbacks for me, it was a good reminder if we're kind of treating this as like a bookending situation. So like we have the beginning where, you know, we talked a lot about how Joel and Midge met and where they were in their lives and how it all came to be. So now at the end, it doesn't feel so odd to me to go back and revisit that and remind people after five seasons. Hey, remember, remember when? Remember when they were young? Remember when, you know, they first found each other? Remember that Penny Pan even existed? Because, again, that's five seasons, you know, and and years in between because it's not like we got back to back seasons. So there's been a lot of time that passed that I think people, you know, who are not podcasters or don't take notes on everything may even be like, who was that lady again? Oh, my God, that's Penny Pan. You know, I didn't mind revisiting that a little bit. I also think it was really important to kind of finish out Joel's redemption arc that he's trying to have here and trying to show that, yes, he did make a move on Penny Pan. And then I don't know how to feel about the fact that he basically uses the same move <laughs> on Midge. You know, like that, men don't have that many moves. I, maybe that's the truth of it. I, I you know, maybe you're you will have to give us the the perspective on that. For me, I felt a little like sloppy seconds e about that move. It didn't feel great. I think we're supposed to feel good. Like, okay, they're gonna come back together and they're gonna co-parent and they're gonna be like even stronger than before, even though they've been through so much. They've actually come back stronger by the end of this 
that's what I'm getting from it. Why we need to go back to that point, because otherwise, I mean, as always, when you're in a last season situation and the last couple of episodes, there is such a like keep putting coal in the furnace because we've got to take this train all the way to the end. And we're like all eager and like panting to get to the end. Mm -hmm. So then when they do something like jerk you back to a beginning sequence and remind you of stuff, it's like. I appreciate the reminders, but I'm desperate for more information because I want to know what happens to Midge. I want to know her actual ending, the story that comes more than this. So it a little feels like, um, you know, like a detour for a little bit. A little. Yeah. Like when you see a flashback to the very beginning of a serialized show, often it's that missing key, you know, that's like, oh shit, he gave that to him all that time ago. Right. And, or like I didn't notice the letter had been framed on the wall the whole time. Right. Or he, he, that she was on the other end of that phone call that we've been wondering about this. We, okay. Mm -hmm. But that wasn't these sequences. This was probably doing more what you're saying. It's reminding us that Joel is still trying to redeem himself we've had those flash forwards to prison we have some guesses about what that's all about or some confirmations about what that's all about i'm gonna add one more thing let me add one more thing to okay. this real quick there's also a, a big theme about people recognizing midge and all that she's accomplished and who she really is throughout this whole episode i mean throughout this whole series but definitely in this episode i think that when we have midge filling joel in at the school about you know that the headmistress about the things that that are going to come up in topics like filling in everything he's kind of looking at her a little bit in awe and like remembering back to like all the way back to when they're they're getting out of the cab and she knows which direction the bridge is and he doesn't but he's like arguing with her and the cabbie has to say no miss like if you're gonna yeah. walk that's the right direction that's thematically correct thematically for, for a later and and kind of everybody right everybody is starting to open their eyes to like wait a minute she wasn't as misguided as i sat here thinking she was she did know her directions and knew which way to head so i'll add that as like a small kernel and just like again just kind of building this foundation to abe's big realization at the end yeah i mean we have a couple of other major storylines in this episode we have what midge is doing we have what abe is doing and we have what Susie does and both of Abe and Susie kind of hang off of Midge's story mm -hmm. in a way. Let's just quickly get out of the way where Abe and Susie start and then as part of Midge's story we'll tell you where they end up. Okay. okay? Susie starts needing to pick up the relationship with James. Dinah is doing that for her. Susie is out of pocket this episode in Baltimore trying to fix things with James. Abe is, is doing the Abe thing. He's trying, he's, he's getting very invested in what Esther is doing, reading a lot. And the, the, the exchange he has with Rose about where he kind of has like this princess bride back and forth with the logic about the, you remember the scene mm -hmm. where he's like trying to figure out if the poison's in front of him and all mm -hmm. that? It's the same kind of logic where he's like, we haven't even begun any kind of kind of thing. And that gives us that, that cool interaction that, that we thirst for with those two. Right. Now, the only thing that I like kind of cocked my eyebrow about, and I know it's a small thing, but it just, I, it just doesn't match up for me. Rose is a character who has been extremely judgmental about everyone's looks, most especially the females. Okay. I actually have not ever heard her critique 
what any man looks like, but she does do a lot of critiquing of what women look like. She's already, when Esther was a baby and like an infant, like not walking yet, she was like critiquing what Esther looked like and worrying about what her nose would look like, her forehead, what her figure would look like. So I thought it was a little like, I don't know, kind of disingenuous for her to be talking about candy and all that kind well, of stuff. It seemed like, yes, it was a way to lure the baby over there. Like, I get it. It, it seemed, I don't know, a little out of place for me. She wasn't saying lure her over with candy she was saying she won't be lured over to your stupid book unless there is candy it's, it's more like uh she's not saying i wish she would eat some candy or i think you should give her some candy it's more like uh i'm just calling it like i see it unless there's any candy over there she's not going over there i'll go with you i'll go with you it's also kind of funny that like a three-year-old would eat hard candy because like you know i think most moms kind of shy away from that these days but they so, had yard darts in this episode I know. man they were yeah. this no, was not a safety I, conscious right episode. it makes me laugh about all that <laughs> stuff it, it just rubbed me a little bit the wrong way and i totally get what you're saying you're 100 right listeners you guys are gonna like paul's right on this one i i agree with you it just it's weird because think of how many times the concept of candy has been brought up is the answer zero? Yeah, zero. So it's like, it, like it, for me, it was just sort of like, okay, I don't know. This doesn't quite fit. So let's bring up Abe and Susie later after okay. we go through what Midge goes through in this episode. So she starts off, like I said, the 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 generator of those of those uh, f- flashbacks was the principal's office i was just gonna i just wanted to comment that it was really it was a funny twist there that they think they're there to talk about ethan and in the end they're talking about abe and my favorite part was like the smoking of the pipe part like that was super funny you know like that was a cool way of like sort of introducing this whole topic that like you know abe's continued to hang around and continue to assess ethan and whatever his assessment is we're gonna get at the end like really isn't just based on just like one interaction. It wasn't just based on the piano playing of the last episode. It was based on him apparently observing and hanging out at school with Ethan. Esther. Ethan. He's given up on Ethan. He went to school to observe Ethan. Originally, yeah. Esther's not at school. She's not? No, she's at the apartment. So, okay. So they're so she's kind of arguing with them about stuff that he's not he could probably going to even do anymore anyway because... He's focusing on Esther. He's given up on it. He doesn't care. Right, right, right. No, no, you're 100% right. But at the beginning of this episode, he hasn't had that realization yet. Ah, He comes to that realization at the end that that Esther and Midge are where he should have put his all of his eggs right in those baskets instead he had put them in ethan and noah and he was feeling you know like shoot i should like rethink this completely i thought that was a fun twist that we weren't here to talk about ethan we were here to talk about abe and that gave us like again more context for what abe's journey is midge's journey takes her back to her college 10-year reunion i didn't even know that's a thing apparently we could probably do that if we wanted to i I don't know yeah i mean i'm sure i mean We both went to University of Texas. We're both Longhorns. I, I mean, I'm sure there's tons of alumni events we could be attending. We could pay to go anywhere at UT. Yeah, that's probably, that's exactly right. <laughs> so, yeah. sure, they'd accept our donation for any party we'd like to attend, which that's what this was. It was like fundraising because they were doing the auction. They were doing the auction. They were winning prizes. But I'm sure it was all, at the end of the day, probably some sort of fundraiser. I think the last interaction I had with the Texas exes was telling them, I don't foresee ever being in a position to give you any of my money for any of you guys who don't remember we have three special needs kids so the idea that we would give back to our university versus like a deaf blind charity or something like that 
obviously our funds are diverted at this point but cool that they had this event and i i had to spec and think why are we going back to college why are we taking midge to this setting what are we supposed to get out of this i was wondering the same thing because i thought this <laughs> scene and this sequence kind of took too long you've helped talk me through <laughs> well i'm gonna talk everybody through what it just justified a little bit, okay so much okay just talking about it's okay, stuff because it's all right because you know what that's what we do we take time and we just talk through stuff so here's the deal here's what i'm getting out of the Bryn Mawr thing so we had a couple of situations happen we had you know her kind of feeling a little bit older a little bit more um out of touch with the younger generation when they go to the dorm room the girls are asking them like are you looking for your own kids and they're like offended because like they're not old enough to have kids their age and to be going to college but there's a whole thing i mean even just out, out of touch like the girls are sitting there listening to music and it's not like midge and her friends enjoy the music with them like they start vacuuming and cleaning like they're so uber domesticated that like that's what they choose to do and it is hilarious to have midge carry around a vacuum cleaner at college because when you think about that and the <laughs> idea of what they all became there's a lot of visual irony there right that we can like guffaw at. Of course, then also having them go to their like clubhouse type setting and read their notes to their future selves and realize that no one's done what they said they were gonna do. And most of the stuff they said they were gonna do turned out to be pretty silly or in and in the end, inconsequential, right? But we read Don have... Quixote in the original Spanish. Right. So now we have Midge's note saying don't. And this reminded me of an episode of Gilmore Girls. For those of you who do a lot like my Gilmore Girls references, just speed ahead a minute or two. Or suck it. Uh, where there's an episode where there is a guy who wants to protest in the town. And he goes up in there and he's yelling words that no one can understand. He throws out a banner. It unfurls, but no one can read it. And then it falls down. And by the end of the episode, nobody knows what he was protesting or what the sign said or what he was saying. And they never talk about it again it's just left like that so there's something about the way that amy and dan write where they are cool with having these kind of moments where it's a it's left up to your imagination you figure it out because partially i think you're supposed to apply it to midge of course but i think also to yourself like well what would it mean to you if you read it and you had written that to your to your older self what would you not do in your life looking back and so for me we were setting midge up to have this sense of nobody's accomplishing what they said they were going to accomplish i'm a lot older than maybe i thought i was and i have this don't note that i i need to figure out what i was trying to tell myself all of those things when you combine them are the motivation of why she comes on so strong with Susie about you have to get me on gordon ford show because now she has these screaming thoughts of like you're getting older you didn't do what you said you were going to do 10 years ago you've got this cryptic note you wrote yourself that you don't even know what you were talking about like take the reins kid and like let's do something and that's how I felt like her conversation with Susie she's like I've just been like smacking my head in a brick wall I don't think that's about the last three years I think that's about the last 10 years you know of her trying to get somewhere and she's not working the beauty of the don't note makes me wish that the Bryn Mawr section had just sped us up they could that, have tightened it up that I mean part. I did not need to have all that conversation at the luncheon about like the finger sandwiches and the whipped salmon all that I I actually felt it really rang very untrue I don't understand in any world where such an expensive elite school that these women would have attended that this 
woman would try to act like, like, what are these finger sandwiches? Like, as if she hasn't been eating them at tons of function her whole life. Right. It's, like, silly to me. So those, t- those moments, or even we went back to that dorm room, like, three times. You know, like, first they're just standing in the doorway, and then they go in and they're talking about music. And then we come back and they ask whether or not they're looking for their kids. And then we go back and she's vacuuming all those comes and goes. We probably did not need. You know, we probably could have made that dorm room one scene back and forth back and forth done you know not revisiting revisiting so i agree with you they could have tightened up the editing a whole bunch on that and i still think we would have walked away with the same thing and listeners we absolutely want you to like write into us send us a little note through instagram through twitter anywhere you want at pod clubhouse and tell us what you think the don't note meant what was what was the don't implying what was she supposed to don't when i think of the word don't and especially the way that Hetty uses it later, mm. as she says, don't, I'm not going to get the exact phrase, but it's, the sentiment is, don't hand off credit for something that you've done. And the word don't itself is like the opposite side of the coin from do, obviously. So when you think of like affirmations, like they're all like, do this, do that, right? Mm-hmm. Be this, be that. Don't, on the other hand, somehow it's like Hetty uses it as like a positive, but you always think of like, don't right. be sad or whatever the, it's a, it's kind of a negative way to look at things. But I don't know. I really, I <laughs> the questioning of what she means by don't and all of the different, is, is, it, is she warning herself against doing things negatively or positively? You know what I mean? Right. You don't worry so much about the word do, but don't is is highly questionable. Right. And I mean, I think it's probably more neutral than you think, um, but it's just we apply it in all these different ways because it could be simply like, don't underestimate yourself. Don't, you know, think you're not worth it. Don't waste time and and not get what you want or something like that. Like it, it can be kind of twisted a little bit to be like this more encouraging word right like, mm-hmm. like i'm trying to lift you up i'm trying to support you i think that's why it's pretty genius to make it the word in the bottle because you could say it could be like don't marry joel or don't go down this path but it also could be like don't forget your wonderful memories here don't you know what i mean like like and that's not a bad thing to say to somebody and it's it's a very kind and encouraging thing to say i think but it's there's something about it that is so loaded that you can just leave it out there all alone and think, oh my God, what was it I was supposed to don't? <laughs> and I don't know what it is. And like, how much would that motivate you though to say, I'm not gonna let that happen to myself again. I'm gonna take action in my life moving forward in a way that is like in my control because I don't wanna be in a position of looking back and not even really knowing what I wanted. But that's funny. Do means take action, don't. On its head, you know, do is do something. Mm-hmm. It's, not, it's not do For Midge, nothing. Here's the trick about Midge, though. Midge doesn't have any problem doing. Most of the time when we've watched any episode, we've been like, Midge, don't do it. Like, whatever it is. Don't walk out there. Don't take your top off. Don't, you know, yell back at that person. Don't yell at the client on the boat a couple of episodes ago. Right. Yeah. Or like, uh, drop the coat in the thing. Right. right. Like she has a tendency to choose these kind of self-sabotaging paths that cause so much havoc in her life that like if sometimes she just didn't, <laughs> if she wouldn't do some of those things, things would go better. 
it could also be looked at like show some restraint show some control like don't let things go off the track like actually try to stay doing what you said you were going to do don't let the world kind of like lead you in different directions obviously it's super loaded we could do uh, hours on what it could mean honestly it works as a narrative device it works because it spurs her on to feeling like if there was an answer to don't it would be i can't to me hmm. so maybe i can't is I can't waste any more time. I can't make that same choice I've been making. I can't not say something. I can't whatever. For me, that's like the seesaw. It's like, don't, I can't, I don't, I can't. If anybody out there graduated from Bryn Mawr or is familiar with the grounds, please tell us if there is a ramshackle clubhouse <laughs> right. where women from the 50s <laughs> hung out writing notes would have been to like themselves. the 40s that they hung out in it, huh? Might have been. Yeah. Might have been. So as I mentioned a minute ago, Hetty doesn't want Midge to give up credit for the excellent skit that she wrote on behalf of Princess Margaret upon her visit to the Gordon Forge show. Mm -hmm. This is a charming little little bit that, that finally gives us a kind of an extended piece of Midge's comedy on display on the show. Right. And and how well it works that she 100% does understand writing for television and understands writing for whomever her person is that's going to actually be saying the lines like she understood what Princess Margaret could do. Give us a little bit of background of Princess Margaret. I know that you watched The Crown and and also that, you know, just sort of the, the concept of like what she was doing there. She was sent on a on a worldwide tour on behalf of Queen Elizabeth. Queen Elizabeth was busy being queen, but the royal family routinely makes trips around the world that take a long time. And in those days they took even longer because a lot of a lot of seg segments were by boat. So when you sent your sister off, she was gone for a year and a half, two years. While Margaret, who several times in her adult life had had her sister tell her no stop it you can't do that tone it down you can't marry that man you can't do this you can't do that once she was away from the from her sister she made the most of it and had a good time she didn't exactly embarrass the crown but they probably would have hoped that she would have acted a little more regal mm. in her time away from the palace her biographer like said that she was a super fun lady who had like a great sense of humor and just that she was just like a great time to be around like i think that's like a pretty amazing <laughs> well even if you see recent interviews with her she has the exact same accent that Elizabeth does, that the actor supertrader mm -hmm. in this does, which is peculiar because when you hear other British people speak, they don't have that same exact accent. So it's it's very it's interesting. It's not peculiar. That's, it's a royal accent that, that they're taught. But it's theirs. It's only theirs. Right. And they and they know it inside and out. When you see her interviewed, even in her eighties or nineties, she's actually still pretty sassy and is willing to give the unexpected answer or put a, a certain British wit into what she says that you don't hear the other royals really pull off. Do you feel like they did right by her then in this portrayal? Yeah, I think so. 
I also read up a little bit more about her in terms of her circle of friends and that she had a lot of people who were in the LGBTQ community around her. Even it was thought that her husband, one of them, was bisexual and perhaps Margaret herself even was a little bit more bisexual, perhaps. Don't really know. I mean, this is just like all kinds of like conjecture. But if you look at those types of comments, it ties us back to Hetty and Susie and why Hetty might have any reach to be able to pull in someone like Princess Margaret because if they were hanging out in these same types of circles where you know we're not talking about people's sexuality out loud but we kind of know something else then that's where Hetty comes in and so it all made sense to me why she would be able to get her and how this would all work and then of course it sets up this great favor that then Gordon really does owe Hetty in that moment. Yeah, you're right. Shoot. I don't know why I didn't see that right away. Because <laughs> he says... Why do you not recognize Because she says, you, you owe me. me. Yeah. And I thought just maybe on the larger scale of their relationship... Well, on that too. I mean, she is his beard um, and he is hers. Um, so it works, you know, for both of them. And when I say that for him, I mean it like that he wants to sleep around with whomever he wants to sleep around with. And she turns a blind eye and she can live her life and be in high society and not worry about her sexuality. So it works for both of them. But I think she coming from money and coming from a, a higher status than him thinks he always owes her something, <laughs> whether that's <laughs> right or wrong. What's that like? As I promised, we will circle back to Abe and Susie, how they tie back in to Midge's life. Let's touch on Susie first, because Abe has a much more important realization, I guess, for the theme of the show from start to finish, whereas Susie's is more like the plot of the show. Okay. As I mentioned earlier, Susie is returning from Baltimore, where she's patching things up with James. Midge intercepts her at the train station. What did you think of... After all this time with Susie, after little slips of trust here and there with Susie, mm -hmm. that Susie still tries to dodge this thing with Hetty. Midge doesn't know what she doesn't know exactly, but she knows something is more than what Susie's admitting to. So what do you think of Susie still trying to, to, to dodge out of the way on this? Hmm. I mean, I guess we could have had her... Be more plain spoken about the whole thing and have it not be like you said kind of just like dodging but be more like you it was a big college it was a big room so many roommates right 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 but that's kind of silly because i mean they had the conversation like in the gay bar you know remember midge broader there and yeah. all that i mean like we touched on all of this in a way that seems like they should be able to speak a little bit more frankly to one another like Susie should be able to say it's awkward for me to talk to Hetty because we had you know a past together and a relationship because they don't completely define exactly what happened between Hetty and Susie but whatever she wanted to say like I don't think it had to be like that like you said there's so the room was so big like I mean that seems too far of mm -hmm. trying to act what are you talking about? Like, we've already addressed this. We already know you have something, a past with Hetty. Why do we have to do this? But I don't really care about that so much because I think we had to have Midge's buttons pushed enough in that conversation for her to really put Susie's feet to the fire. Like, if Susie just said, I can't do it. I had an old relationship with her and, she, and it, it was just more plain back and forth i think it would be kind of boring i guess in a way for this because she did get dodgy with it 
then I think that like amped Midge up more. Like, don't you go backwards on me, you know? Like, mm. don't you try to pull us back to that space? Because they did. They they brought up uh, the gaslight. They brought up like again. We we're sort of doing a little memory lane move where it's like, remember where we met? Remember how this all happened? Remember what I acted like at the gaslight? You know me. All those things feel like okay. Let's remember where we started, <laughs> you know. Within this conversation, and then within this conversation, we're going to actually push this forward and say, enough is enough. I know where we came from, and I know what we've been doing for three years, but this is not just a chapter in my life's book. This is my life. And for me, I was like, whoa, that that was very good writing and a very good way to explain it to Susie of like, we are not just playing here. Like, this is not just three years of my life where at one time, remember, I got on stage and it was so funny. This is not that, you know, this is not that wild story that you tell at a party. This is my career. This is my whole life. So let's treat it that way, you know, and it, and it felt more aggressively like timeline push. It would have been very unsusie like and the stakes, like as you just mentioned, would have been dampened had she said she hurt me romantically and I don't want to talk to her. Right. Like we don't <laughs> we kind of don't even okay. want to know that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like we've never said that. And I think saying it actually takes some of the weight out of it. Whereas when it's unspoken like that. It's like we don't know the depth of her, her her hurt. We don't know what happened. So we can only go by Susie's responses that, okay, it was pretty bad. Like she will barely even acknowledge this to Midge. You know, she's still trying to dance around and act like they were just college roommates, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. All of that stuff. Which again, Susie went to college? Apparently so, huh? yeah. <laughs> okay. Pembroke. Yeah. Yeah. At the same place that Hetty would go. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, maybe it was a scholarship situation. Does it seem right to you? Susie wore like man's clothes and ha and like, do you remember her whole existence? Like, yeah. She has yeah. higher learning in this character. Like, I'm not like, please, if you are like, I am over here relating to Susie. I'm not like in any way dogging out Susie, but I'm saying they have presented a character who led a pretty simple life and had a really rough background with no support from anyone in her family. That's really amazing that a woman at that time would make it to that level educationally. Yeah. Even unbelievable. <laughs> there might be more to this this story, but it I ends... I think there is, and it's something that fanfic will have to carry out. But it ends up with the kernel of the message, you know, that if you don't, then I'll always know that you could have helped and you didn't, which in a relationship like that, like in all really highly reliant i don't even know if it's symbiotic exactly but it, but that day in day out i'm seeing you you're seeing me kind of relationship if there's that element of i know you could have helped and you didn't between two people that's the wedge that forms the fracture okay so i want to take that exact same thought and go over to her relationship with abe and tell me that there weren't how many times unspoken where she felt that same way about him I think this is what Abe is weeping uh -huh. about in the wine. Because he's realizing, just like Susie standing there, was hearing what Midge said, he is making these same, same realizations of like, I didn't help when I could have. I didn't step in. I didn't encourage. I didn't show her more opportunities. I didn't do these things. And it's not that he was a bad parent because you could. they could have easily set it up where he said, I didn't take anyone to work. 
I never showed her, you know, math or whatever, but they bothered to say, I took Noah. Yeah. I took him to everything and I left her at home. Again, post Barbie, post a lot of stuff, post me being a little bit older. Not that much older, you guys, but a couple months since old Maisel came out. And Carolyn's had a lot of growth, let me just tell you, about my own little self and my worth. And I'm over here saying like, oh my God, Midge would have known deep in her heart that her father and her mother, but her father could have done more to help her, to encourage her, to support her. For God's sake, all this whole time, they've just been denying her career, like really even exists. Right. You know, I mean, it's like such a low bar of anything they could have done, literally anything, just acknowledge she has a job, you know, they really don't even try to acknowledge that. So it's so frustrating. But I think that's the thing. Can it ever be an actual, I don't even want to say relationship. I don't quite know the right word. Can you be loyal to somebody that you know didn't help you when they could have? Yes, but it does reframe the relationship. Like she still has a relationship with her father. And to an extent, she would like him to be proud of her. But not in the kind of that crippling way where if you were like in lockstep with each other as mentor, mentee, you know, that kind of relationship that he wanted with Noah, mm -hmm. right? But then it sounds like he laments that that Noah is sort of like low ambition. Well, but not. Okay, but hold on a second. Wait a second, because I, I'm, I'm a little bit confused about this point because I was sitting there thinking, why did they make Noah a professional? Where does he work? It's not Bell Labs, but it's the government, right? It's uh, isn't he? He's like got clearance in of some like, kind, almost like the CIA, -ish something kind like of that. Thing. Yeah. Okay, so I'm sorry. He has no ambition. What are well, we talking? No, I want to finish this thought. Okay. What in the world are we talking about when we say that Noah didn't do like a good enough job? He didn't show enough motivation. What must that man have would have to have done to be in that position? He's a very young man. It's not like he's 50 and this is all he's done. He's like in his like early 30s at best. And this is where he is in his life. And we're chalking that guy up as to the unmotivated loser that like he's being painted as. Abe is is still it's like he's reforming how he's looking at everything because he's because he was seemed also to be framing this this lamentation on well, you got to throw your weight behind one kid, even if, you, even if you've got or even two one or three or whatever. Right. Well, he was rewriting the gender part, right. but he but he seems stuck on the, I mean, I can only do a good job with one. Can you dispute yes, that? Understand. No, no, no. I, to I totally get that. And you're right. And, and it carries on to Ethan and Esther as yeah. well. Right, but exactly. Is, but the thing is that they go out of their way to show us that Ethan is in the happiness group. Because the only thing he's good at is being happy. That's it in his school. Like they go through all this where there's like a science table and a math table. And Ethan participates in the happy table. Mm -hmm. Noah is not Ethan. And they're equating them the same. And I'm like saying like, I feel like Ethan, uh, I mean, I feel like Noah would be at the math table or the science table. And so it's a little bit weird to me why they didn't just go whole hog and make Noah like a garbage man or... I don't know, something that people, I don't even know what to say because I respect garbage men. So I want to say some job that people don't respect, but I don't exactly know what that is. Just a screw up. Maybe he flunks out of 
college. Maybe his marriage is a mess. Maybe he's always the guy walking behind Astrid with like 20 bags, like fumbling or something. They've never made him out to be anything other than responsible, professional, punctual, loyal. What in the world are we paying Noah to be like a jackass for? Maybe maybe there's elements of Noah's story that were left on the cutting room floor that has to be that somehow made their way into that comment where he sounds disappointed disappointed you're right what's on screen is a guy that's doing just fine and doing and showing up at Sunday dinner or whatever when they ask him to and being supportive of his wife and doing all I mean I'm you guys I again I'm super pro this message at the end here about women and about how we're overlooking our daughters and like we need to be doing more to be like giving more opportunities to both boys and girls. But I was bothered at the concept that we have to put down Noah in order to raise up Midge. It's like he still didn't get the point. You didn't have to do that. It's only one dinner. It's only one dinner, you guys. We're going to assume that Abe is on this journey for the rest of his life. And he's going to continue to kind of understand that, like, you don't have to drop one to raise the other. Like, come on. But it's something that kind of got to me because I think, again, going back to the Barbie movie concept, I'm not going to spoil anything for you guys who haven't watched. But there's a lot of backlash that it's like in order to be pro Barbie, you've got to be anti Ken. And I'm like, no, it was never like that. You can be proud of Ken and be proud of Barbie. You can be proud of Noah and be proud of Midge. It was a fake choice that he was making that didn't need to be. Like you said, why in the world is he acting like you can only be cool with one kid? Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's just not the way it is. Maybe he was seeing room for balance in there because he was saying that he never even took Midge seriously. Right. Which is a pretty disrespectful thing to have to admit to yourself that even taking someone seriously sort of like you mentioned a second ago a very low bar to treat another human being with yes uh especially one of your kids yeah there were so many amazing dialogue moments at that dinner that i was pretty blown away you could probably do an entire like one act play of those men sitting around the table having these realizations. I was relating to so much of it, which is funny because they were describing themselves as these old men who had been born in the 1800s and all this technological uh, progress had been happening faster and faster and faster. And now at this point, the amount of progress that's been making in just one year is the equivalent of an entire lifetime before. I feel that way. I mean, all this tech AI stuff that we're dealing with or driverless cars, all this. I mean, my head spins sometimes where I'm like, I feel like we kind of live in the future, but also like a very messed up future. (laughs) And like somehow we're supposed to be like happy and excited about a lot of these things, but they feel dangerous and like they're taking away something from our current life. Like they have pizza robots in Austin now. What's a pizza robot? It's like a little robot that delivers pizza, rolls along on the sidewalk. And Which goes, just gives you pizza like as you're walking? No, it's delivering it to a specific place. But oh, you never but seen this? 
No. Yeah, it's like a it's like the size of a little scooter. Well, now I want a pizza robot. People molest this thing like crazy. <gasps> no. Yeah. I mean, I don't see how any pizza ever gets anywhere with this thing. Oh my god. Oh my god, that's very funny. I like that very much. Okay, I approve of a pizza robot. Okay, in theory, the concept <laughs> one is really fun and cool, and I'm not frightened by that technology at all. But no, it's not frightening. People pick it up, turn it the wrong way, no, kick I'm it, sure and stuff. They're it is unfrightening. Oh. <laughs> that's funny okay so going back to our conversation but, but could you relate though i mean you're a tech guy and even still like think about how much progress was making in the tech world say when we're in elementary or middle oh, school i or mean versus like where we are now where every time we you know turn on a computer to read the news ha, 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 <laughs> you know it's like oh shit something else that i do is now antiquated and it is we're no longer doing it that way like what do you mean i have to tap my card everywhere ah. well we just watched this film that someone put on youtube of walter cronkite oh wow um telling us about all these things that were going to be just a normal part of everyone's life in the future house of the future and so many things were so wrong. But some things were very right. Some were some were close. Yeah, like okay, so they had this concept of having like a console, like a physical gigantic desk, like you would see like Homer Simpson work at, like a gigantic <laughs> gigantic dashboard, right, that you were like sitting behind. And that's what worked like everything in your house, like the lights and the air conditioning and the, everything you were going to do, music. you were going to do on this. Now, as silly as that looked, we do the exact same thing on our phones with our Alexa app. So it's exactly the same. I have a console in front of me that I turn on the lights and I turn down the heat and I do whatever else, you know, like I, I do that exact same thing. They were like, the TVs are going to be huge. That's a that's both a fact and fiction in terms of like, and they also got tiny. Or the device too. that that delivered the news to you oh, yeah. by printing out the newspaper, the newspaper at your house close but no cigar but the concept is right the yeah. concept of you not having to leave your house but somehow get the news delivered to you that's fact yeah it's, so cool it's, that they i mean they couldn't come up with the technology of how we were going to do that besides just printing the newspaper at our house or right yeah <laughs> but well, they got the idea what was the other thing like the there's so many like the the kids were doing their homework on kind of like this ai typewriter but it worked like a typewriter. So they had to like type things in on paper that would like scroll up and then the machine would type back to them. And then they, and then they just were getting like reams and reams of paper to get their quote unquote homework done. I was laughing really hard about that. I said to you, cause they also had paper furniture and I said, you know, this must've been <laughs> not long after when we started to be like, we might be using too much paper. <laughs> We might should should start recycling or cut back or something because you guys seriously there was a chair made of paper. Yeah, the concept was like, <laughs> well, I've had this chair too long, or I'm tired of this chair. I'll just I'll just throw it away because it's made out of paper anyway. Uh, it was funny, but the whole concept though of like how fast technology is moving. Who could not relate to that conversation at that table? Like that was real. And I know they use the example of like them being born in the 1800s, not having electricity, not even having like running water, all this kind of stuff. But like, and look where we are now to that table of men, you know, oh my God, we're so far. And then when we look at them, we're like, oh my God, we are so much further. And it's so much shorter of a period of time because they're early 1960s looking back at 1800s and we're at 2023 and we're like looking back it's like very similar right like mm -hmm. it's like 60 years but look at the difference 
Right. Like we have self-driving cars. Not yeah, not very good ones. Have you seen all the wrecks they keep getting into? Good lord! But <laughs> still, we've got something. The the by the way, Paul, the whole concept of like by now on the Jetsons, we had flying cars. We're not ready. No, we're not ready for that no. because we can't keep trains on tracks. We keep we cannot keep the planes from almost colliding with another with trained pilots up there. You think you just gave me a car? We just start driving in the air? No. No. I see these people in our cul-de-sac driving around golf carts. We can't give those people flying cars. Okay? <laughs> or carts. The first thing they're going to do is put a little box on the side of it and put their dog in it. Because that's what the golf cart men do <laughs> that drive around the neighborhood. They put these little handmade boxes on their golf carts, you guys. And they put the dogs in them. It's funny. <laughs> it's so silly. Anyway, back to this table. What did you think about the whole conversation that the one man was having or comment or reflection that he was looking around at his life and he was seeing all this stuff and he was feeling very overwhelmed by his piles of life, basically? He he looked to be the oldest man in the group. Each man there seemed to represent some element of... Abe's realization. Ah, I like that. It's like inside out where we get to see all his emotions. But not all of it. None of and none of them, unless they did more work thinking about this, would get as far as him or completely evolve to like a new way of thinking like Abe has the potential of doing. Like his boss at the voice, he represents nowhere. He's not thought about it. He's open minded, but he's still a product of his time right yep there's the other guy who realizes that he rode his son too hard and he never hears from him anymore but that's as much as he wants to think about it he's done thinking about it he just you know sees his son at christmas maybe but that's about it then there's the older man the man you just brought up i think his name was arthur and his piles his piles that represent his wife his piles that represent him his life piles of life and me you our parents we're closer to that and we're seeing that in our own lives when we visit our parents houses Mm. i just spent the last week with my sister literally picking through the piles and my parents are both alive but the piles have become overwhelming for them and so rather than wait until they're not here any longer as arthur describes and the imagined children picking through their things and basically just tossing their memories aside we like tried to sit down with our parents a little bit and go through stuff and be like tell us the story well what is who is this a picture of and like trying to kind of pass some stuff along and get rid of things so that there's not gigantic piles to be gone through it's those piles that are digging it at abe and any introspective person probably is are you proud of those piles or those piles how you want them because they kind of represent something that's unchangeable that you can get rid of it i suppose right but they're like memories it's already happened right it's a done deal whatever that pile is to me you know i I have two questions for you one so i'm not a man so i've never had a conversation sitting around with other men did it ring true to you that people would have these realizations but then there'd be like no follow-up yes but only insofar as I am not of an age yet where men, especially acquaintances, talk very personally like that. Like, Well, they're co-workers, so they, they have a little more camaraderie than just like straight up acquaintances. Yeah. My actual friends, 
it's pretty rare to put any kind of like emotional baggage off on somebody else be like this is bothering me and now i want it to bother you a little bit that's not really how men talk i didn't take it like that did you take it like the things that they were saying they were trying to unload no. onto other people no but that's i mean but that is a kind of a result it's just more like abe's so overwhelmed and they asked yeah you know but but the other guys piped up too and had their own stuff and so that's where i'm like thinking like it's it would be my assessment just completely from the outside that they did do a good job of capturing how men do talk to each other in terms of like you can make this like earth-shattering comment and literally the next comment is someone's like well we should order halibut yeah and it's just like moving on and nobody's gonna go back whereas like in a group of women it might be a week later and we'd be like hey remember at lunch when you brought that up did you want to like say more about that? Because I was like thinking about that. Like, I don't guess that these men are ever going to do that, you know, and have that moment. And you so could put money on that. <laughs> but so this worked for me. All of these sort of non sequitur realizations that they were individually having that some, you know, of course it related in some way, but in another way was very personal. You know, I mean, this man had lost his wife. That was not something that anyone else seemed to relate to. And he was sharing this and explaining how, you know, it really felt crappy to see the sum total of his life as piles of stuff like that really bothered him. That's something that you and I have come to where I know you've said, do you ever feel like we just have too much stuff? Like you've asked that to me. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> because I think there's a period of time when you spend a lot of time of your life trying to get enough money to get the stuff you need. And then it's like gleeful when you can spend a little bit more money and get stuff you actually want. And then you can spend maybe a little more money on some stuff that you don't actually need. It's truly just a luxury to have in some way. And then I think you get to the point where you have enough and you actually start to look around and it's actually uncomfortable because it starts to feel like you have too much. Well, it's because it's a lot of us have kept yes, the stuff that we needed, <laughs> wanted, and, and then, then and he had those extras. Yeah, we and kept now all that too stuff. Much yeah. Because you worked so hard to get that first thing that you needed. Because it took so many hours to buy that stupid Ikea nightstand or whatever that now it's really hard to let that thing go because you know at the time it was all you could afford and it was fancy at the time. I felt that way about our first couch, but our first couch was kind of uncomfortable. So but we still felt so fancy that we had our own couch that wasn't a hand-me-down. So when you said you wanted new couches, I was like, well, I mean, this one... Doesn't feel like we've had it very long, but I don't like to sit on it. So <laughs> I guess so. Let's get rid of it. Right, right. So I don't know. We're all understanding Arthur on some level. I've also been watching The Gentle Art of Swedish Death Cleaning. So I'm having super love for Arthur and his realization of like, I can't just let this all go to my kids where they're just going to pick through this stuff and throw my memories away. Very, very relatable for me right now feeling everything that was happening at this table. Let's get in a little bit deeper about what Abe's comment was, though, about the him actually calling out the other men and saying, like, we are actually ignoring these wonderful, talented, resourceful, brilliant people in our lives just because they're women. That's insane. And we need to stop this. I was like, wow, because the other men were listening, but I don't think anybody was on board. Well, and they wouldn't be. Not yet. There's just too much that they would have gone through in their lives 
Again, they were born in the 1800s. Born in the so 1800s, went, probably went to school with only men. I'm sure. Only worked with men in right? positions of control and authority. But they even touched on that. They said, we have so much power. We have so much control. And yet, look what we do. Look at the choices we make. And look who we are overlooking. I found the whole thing, again, post-Barbie, because I've seen this episode a bunch of times. And that table conversation, it was interesting. And it was important to me for Abe's character to finally recognize Midge. That's all I came away with it. Wow, he finally sees his daughter for who she is. This is his arc. This is. But now watching it, though, I can see the bigger conversation they were having. I can I internalize the bigger conversation so much more. And I'm like actually very excited for people who, if you were motivated by Barbie at all, like, please go watch Maisel because there is a lot of the same message in it. Yeah, he's a little bit ahead of his time and he's just just one guy with one daughter. But, you know, he's also got this granddaughter that he's that yes. we don't know where that story is going to lead to exactly. But we do know that she becomes a genius scientist. level success. Yeah. Um, she has some personal issues, but she is the smartest person in the room. Yeah. So I think, too, the other thing that really made me feel good and like this was just well written is that when you look at all the seasons, how many times have you heard in your life the idea that like parents do as much as they can for their kids, but then when it comes to their grandkids, they're like better at it. Like, oh, all the time. Like, okay, so it's interesting and great writing that they bothered to have him have this growth that like, yeah, you have a hand in raising your grandkids because you live in the house, which again, he pointed out his daughter bought, which I loved. You get a chance to try again. You know, you get a chance to, as far as I'm concerned, Everybody's just growing here. So I don't think you have to walk around with like the the regret and the remorse part as hard as you have to say, when given the next opportunity, like Esther sitting here in front of me, I'm going to do something different and I'm going to like really invest and encourage what I see here as potential. All of that made me feel so happy and so warm and fuzzy like there's hope because if a guy like Abe, who was born in the 1800s and raised his daughter and treated her the way he did can come to this conclusion in just that one generation between his daughter and his granddaughter, there's a lot of hope there for me that people can change their ways and can see things differently. What was your overall takeaway from that dinner conversation? Well, I mean, story-wise, Abe has reached the end of his, his arc. That's what mm -hmm. he was there to do. He was there to be the professor stuck in his ways metamorphosize and then finally understand that his daughter is a valuable person worthy of his support like you've been pointing out the other men are there to point out how much work is left to go because he's only one man at the table right even though there's only four men there I don't know that in that day and age he would represent 25% of the male mindset right then. Oh, definitely not. So I think <laughs> in large the table, he still might be the only guy there that thinks be. the way he does. The thing that also made me actually really pleased with the way they wrote it is that Abe had this realization and he declares it as is, right? Like, my daughter is amazing. She has all this talent and I have not given it any attention. I've not praised it. I've not acknowledged it for what all this talent and all this drive and motivation that she has is. But what was really cool about it, I thought, and accurate because we talked about how men talk, no one talks back to him about it. 
There's no push on it. They, no one says, ah, but genders are what they are. And like closes off the conversation because that would cap it, right? We'd have closure. And what's awesome is that what Abe says leaves it all wide open. It leaves it open for you to go have a conversation with your friend or your spouse or your parent or whoever. Say what Abe was talking about and then not have any kind of looming dialogue of where anyone shut it down. Do you get what I mean? Mm. Like they left the conversation right there for you to pick up and continue on. And I think that's an amazing testament to good writing and accurate to like, I don't think any men would follow up. I think they'd be like, Burr. that what you think? I'm going to have the hell. But, you know, like, <laughs> but like nothing. Right. And that's I think that that was smart and cool and very sophisticated upper level writing where you just leave it there for everybody to simmer on and, and do what you want with it. Very cool. This episode for me was great and it got better over time for me, which is something that doesn't always happen. Sometimes things age so poorly and it could have. But with this massive Barbie movie emerging with all these similar messages, I think that this is really going to get some traction, hopefully in rewatches and people coming back to the series, I hope, and kind of watching it with even like another set of eyes that even me who would have said, I'm a pretty wide open kind of person. I, I pay attention and I do think women are amazing and all that. I even felt it even more, which I didn't know I really could. This is Caroline. And this is Paul. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so other people can find it as well. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you. Pod Clubhouse.